At the beginning of this series, I discussed, uh, you know, the dangers of seeing the book of Judges as, as just being purely moralistic. That is a guide in, in how to be a, a better you, how to be a, how to be a good person, because you want to be like so-and-so, you know, you, you want to be like Jephthah. Uh, no, you don't. Uh, you want to be like Gideon. No, you don't. You don't, you don't want to be like these people. So it's, it's dangerous to see this as a, as a moralistic uh, compilation of stories. We need to see that these aren't stories of faithful people who are supposed to be imitated as much as these are stories of flawed people who were used by God in mighty ways, despite their flaws, which I find a lot of hope in, because honestly, I see a lot of flaws in myself when I'm honest with myself. And, and I, you know, I could say, wow, how could God ever use somebody like me? Well, he uses flawed people. And that's one of the great lessons from this book. Well, Samson is going to be no exception, believe me. Uh, If there's one thing that has ever perplexed me about the Bible in my life, it is the story of Samson. And the reason that it at least used to leave me feeling perplexed is because I remember being taught in Sunday school to be strong like Samson. And as I got into high school and and really started reflecting on this story and some others, I, I started thinking, why would I want to be like that guy? You know, he's, he's, you know, just constantly messing things up. He's, he's just a, a mess. Um, and, and so I started thinking, you know, Samson doesn't seem like the kind of guy to, to really be imitated. But after studying the Bible for, for many years now, I understand why we find the story of Samson in the Bible. And contrary to the lessons in therapeutic, moralistic deism that get drawn from it, I now see that the reason that it seemed odd to me at the time is because it was the way that it was being taught to me, the way that it was being presented, the way that it was being framed. It was all very odd because Samson is not a story of how to be strong. The story of Samson is a demonstration of how weak even the strongest flesh is. That's what the story of Samson is all about. Even the strongest flesh is weak. It's a lesson in not looking to even the strongest leaders among us, but to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus. And one of the things that we'll see as we study the the life of Samson is that while he's remembered for his great strength, he was actually the weakest of all of the judges in terms of his walk with the Lord, in terms of his faithfulness to God. Even though, as we saw in our previous lesson, his purpose was ordained by God from eternity, and he was to be set apart for God's service from the moment he was miraculously conceived. In fact, I might even argue that the reason God has this special arrangement with Samson, where Samson, you know, as long as he's abiding by this Nazarite vow, is going to have incredible strength, um, is to show us how weak even the strongest flesh is. And nobody in here would say they've got the strongest flesh, right? So how much weaker are we? So if there's anything that I gather from all this, it's that it's very hard for us to know, and I understand this, it's very hard for us to know exactly what to do with somebody like Samson. I can certainly sympathize with that. We saw that Israel had become idolaters once again at the end of uh, chapter 12, leading into chapter 13, and that the Lord handed them over to their enemies as he had done so many times before, this time for a period of 40 years. And after 40 years, the Lord came to Samson's mother and and father to tell them what would happen. And we caught just the slightest glimpse of how synchronized, syncretized their faith was. Syncretized faith. Let me define that. That's a term that I've, I've used repeatedly throughout this study to describe the condition of Israel when they tried to have one foot in heaven and one foot on earth. And as a result, they compromised their faith. Because you can't straddle heaven and earth. It's what a lot of Christians do as well, by the way. It's 
one of our great struggles, one of our great temptations, when we, we try to live for Jesus, but we don't want to look or seem or come across as radically different from the world, and so we import non-biblical, carnal ideas, carnal uh, worldview, and try to make it work with a biblical worldview. And that's dangerous because that divide between heaven and earth is too great to be straddled. And in the end, you will have to pick one or the other. In fact, I would argue that we already do. In fact, we do every moment. Decide if we're living for heaven or living for earth. There's no such thing, there's no such thing as carnal Christianity. It's an oxymoron. There's carnality or there's Christianity. But the two terms together don't fit. They're in direct opposition to one another. And it doesn't work for the same reason that you wouldn't call somebody a godly atheist. Those two terms can't go together. Neither can carnal Christian. I actually went and found a Sunday school lesson on Samson. And I'll I'll be sharing uh, bits and pieces of it as we go along today. The intent is not to make fun of it or, or to mock it, but to hopefully correct some misunderstandings. According to this Sunday school lesson, it starts out saying this, quote, Since Samson's parents were still loyal to God at a time of spiritual decadence in Israel, God answered their prayer and chose them to have a son. End quote. Where does that come from? I mean, we've already seen that that's, that's completely false. God stepped in to act. God stepped in to rescue despite the unfaithfulness of Samson's parents and the rest of Israel. But there's no indication that they ever prayed for a son. There's no indication that they were faithful to God. In fact, they were trying to manipulate him the same way that you would manipulate a pagan god. But again, it's, it's hard for us to figure out exactly what to do with this. We need to see this story in light of the fact that by the end of Samson's parents' encounter with God, they were taught the lesson that they needed most, and it's a lesson that we need too. And that is that it's more important to know the ruler than it is to know the rules. The unfaithfulness of Samson's parents to Yahweh is obvious. It's clear as day from the moment of his birth. So we pick it up in verse 24 of chapter 13. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. There's a lot to be said about that one verse. In fact, there's a lot to be said about this whole passage today. You would be amazed at how much I had to scale back. I almost thought about doing these six verses in, in two sermons. But here what we see is that he gets the name Samson. In fact, the name Samson reveals that his parents were anything but faithful to God. Even after their encounter with him, they still have this pagan worldview that they're trying to syncretize with their worldview as Israelites, as God's people. His name means little son, S-U-N, little son. The Canaanites as you may know, considered the sun to be the greatest of all the deities, the greatest of all the false gods. And this gives us just another glimpse of this compromised, syncretized, carnal faith of the Israelites, which is no faith at all. Manoah and his wife, they, they knew bits and pieces of what we would read in the first uh, you know, five or six books of the Bible. They knew that no one could see God and live, and so thus, uh, following their encounter with God, Manoah is expecting to be you know, struck with lightning or something. He's thinking he's about to die. They tried to manipulate God with food and asking for his name, the same way that they would attempt to manipulate idols and false gods. Here they know that their son is supposed to have the purpose of serving Yahweh, serving the one true living God, but they name him the son of the greatest pagan deity. Now, I don't know about you, but if if I'm Samson, I'm thinking that I'm not off to a very good start here. I've already got the odds stacked against me. In fact, it's concerning that the one who's supposed to be set apart for Yahweh, 
set apart for his service, set apart to be used by God in delivering and judging Israel. He's named after a pagan God. And it's a good indication of what's to come. Now, I want you to see this. Even though he's named after a pagan deity, even though he's had a rough start, we read that as he grew, the Lord blessed him. But we should know that the Lord's blessing upon him, the Lord's calling upon him, was not because Samson was faithful. To the contrary, what we're going to see is that there are only two moments in his entire life in which he's really faithful to God. And one of those is at the end of his life. God blessed Samson in spite of himself. And yet, our Sunday school lesson reads this, quote, As a young boy, Samson was obedient to his vow and loyal to God. I'm not sure which Bible they're getting that from, but there's no textual evidence to support that statement whatsoever. God blessed Samson because God is sovereign. And because he's sovereign, he will show mercy to whom he will show mercy, to use his own words as he spoke them to Moses. And who are we to argue with God's right? To show mercy. After all, we're recipients of it too. God is going to accomplish what God has said he's going to accomplish. And so he blesses Samson. And it seems like there was a, you know, probably a nine month jump between verses 23 and 24. And uh, between verses 23 and 25, there. There's an even even greater jump. So verse 25, we read this. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan, between Zorah and Eshtal. Now we should remember, uh, based on what we read about Samson's parents uh, in the previous passage, we should remember that Samson's from the tribe of Dan. Mahanadan simply means the camp of Dan. Uh, Zorah and Eshtal were a couple of towns in the region that were about a mile apart. Uh, There's a spring that runs between these two towns, kind of right between them. So it's possible uh, that Samson and his parents were were living by this spring. I mean, if you're living in a place like that, you know, you want to live close to a water source. And so uh, that seems to be where they were living, by this spring, which I I just came to my mind, there, there might be something in there too, a spring of water. hmm. Staying close to God, they're probably staying closer to God than most of Israel. And it was here, at least, that God began to stir Samson. At this point, the expectations that we as the audience, we as the people who are reading this text, the expectations that we would have for Samson's life are probably tremendously high, even though the expectation was probably knocked down a couple levels when we found out that he was named after a pagan god. Um, It's a setup. It's all a setup. You're supposed to have these high expectations, and that's what the author is trying to do, give you these high expectations just so you can be more and more disappointed. Honestly, that's, that's kind of what it's all about. He's actually going to turn out to be the most flawed, the most faithless judge out of all the judges. And so if you have high expectations in Samson to be this you know, great judge who delivers Israel and leads them back to faithfulness to God and, and, and demonstrates, uh, you know, serves as a model for godly living, I'm sorry, you're going to be disappointed. Instead of being faithful, Samson turns out to be a violent, sexually impulsive, selfish, emotionally immature man. And some of you women are thinking, that sounds like every guy I've ever met, right? (laughs) And yet his flaws and his shortcomings will all serve their purpose in that they remind us that God's people need another, a greater, a more faithful deliverer, rescuer, redeemer, and savior. So once we turn to chapter 14, the problems seem to just exacerbate. They, they, they begin immediately, starting with uh, verse 1 through, through verse 3. We read this. Samson went down to Timnah, And at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. 
Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. So one day, Samson heads down to Timnah, and he sees this beautiful, sensual woman who was the daughter of the Philistines. And this should immediately give us what I would call cause to pause, a a good reason to to stop and, and, and think about exactly what this is telling us about Samson, about his character, about who he is as a person. In the previous verse, he was being stirred by God end of chapter 13. Now he's being stirred by sexual lust for the enemy. Remember, the purpose that God had ordained on Samson, first Samson's life, was to begin the work of freeing Israel from captivity to the Philistines. But Samson, he doesn't even seem to view the Philistines as an enemy. Think about it. He's grown up in a land in Israel where where they were in captivity to these Philistines. And he doesn't view them as an enemy. He's grown up being surrounded by them. He's grown up being with, with the culture just being infiltrated by them. And he's so comfortable with their presence, with them as people being in their land, the land that God had given them, He doesn't see any danger in desiring to have one of them as his wife. Let me ask you this. Do you think the same thing could happen to us with sin? That we can be so surrounded by it that we just kind of become numb to it and maybe even comfortable with it? You bet you can. So upon coming home, Samson instructs his parents to get her, to get this sensual, beautiful woman he saw, to get her for him as his wife. Now it was customary for the parents to select the spouse for their children, but Samson's found a loophole in the system. Yeah, they can pick, but I'm going to tell them what to pick. Loophole, uh, he demands that his parents get this woman for him as his wife. And if this sounds impulsive, if this sounds barbaric, it is. It is. Stepping into the shoes of his parents for a moment, this has to be so distressing for them. Of course, they remember their encounter with the angel of the Lord, who we saw is the Lord himself. It's, a, it's a, uh, an instance where the pre-incarnate Christ appears in the Old Testament. They know what Samson's purpose is, at least his mother does, as sovereignly ordained by God, and knowing that Samson's purpose is to wage war with the Philistines. Imagine their dismay. Imagine their, their utter shock when they find out that he wants to marry one of the Philistines. And so they plead with him to consider other options. They beg him to consider the young women of of Israel or even of their own family. And don't, don't get this wrong. It's not that they don't want him marrying a foreign woman. It's that they don't want him marrying a woman from an uncircumcised people. That's the key word here, uncircumcised That's what makes the difference here. It's not racial animosity of any sort. They're not saying, no way are we going to let you marry one of those Philistines. They're saying, you should find a wife from our own circumcised people. It's about entering into a covenant of marriage with a woman who's in a covenant relationship with God. Instructing the Israelites about clearing out the pagan gods of the land The Lord instructed the Israelites back in Exodus saying this. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 13 to 16, he says, You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. What's the context here? Idolatry. 
worshiping false gods. He continues, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. In the context of this warning against idolatry, there's a warning against marrying somebody of a different faith. God's instructions weren't to prohibit interracial marriage. After all, Moses had an interracial marriage with Zipporah, uh, but she submitted herself, she brought herself under the covenant that God had with Israel. So it's against interfaith marriage, not interracial marriage. We're going to come back to this in a few moments. But Samson has no interest whatsoever in getting any advice from his parents, and he ignores their pleas. He just keeps the conversation short. He turns to his father, and he says some very telling words. He says, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. We've seen that this is... One of the main themes in the book of Judges, it's one of the great struggles uh, that God's people faced. It's one of the great struggles that we see going on in our nation today as well. The idea that we should be able to do whatever seems right in our own eyes. That's where social ethics has gone. You know, what's right for you? Whatever works for you. How many, how many of you guys uh, have heard that saying, whatever works for you? We've all heard it, Right? That's the social ethic of the day when the only thing that matters is what's right in God's eyes. But Samson doesn't care what's right or wrong in God's eyes. He's impulsive. He wants what seems right in his own eyes at any given moment. He's driven by the desire for instant gratification He wants this woman, and he wants her now. He says, go get this woman for me now. This was not how a young man was ever to speak to his father in their culture. It still isn't, by the way, in our culture. But this isn't a place where we can just skim over it and say, eh, you know, okay, maybe that was how things worked in their culture. You know, the son, once he grew up and, you know, know, once he started growing hair on his chest, he could boss his parents. No, this was not the cultural norm. It wasn't. This opening passage says everything that we need to know about Samson's character as a young man. He's crude. He's impulsive. He's faithless. He's prideful. He's unteachable. And he's a slave to his senses. Gideon was driven by the desire for revenge. Jephthah was driven by uninformed, uneducated belief. Samson is driven by lust, sexual lust, which we'll definitely see uh, more clearly as the story continues to unfold. And it's lust, it's his sexual lust that overrides any and every sense of faithfulness to God that Samson might have. Crude, impulsive, faithless, prideful, unteachable, slave to his senses, These are words, if we're being honest, these are words that would describe every single one of us too if God had left us on our own, to our own desires and our own impulses. It's only by his grace that we're even able to move in the opposite direction from these qualities. We need to understand that Samson is a leader whose affections and desires reflect the affections and desires of his people, of of the land of Israel. They were carnal. They were worldly. And you know what? They liked it that way. They were comfortable that way. They didn't cry out to God to save them from the oppression of the Philistines. They were perfectly fine with it. That's why they didn't cry out to God. They got to the point where it was just normal. And Samson is a reflection of the spiritual state of the nation. That's almost always the way it works, by the way. A leader, the person who gets appointed as the leader, will usually reflect the ambitions and desires of the people. 
But Samson is the weakest of all the judges because Israel is in its weakest state yet at this point. The Sunday school lesson comments, quote, how much easier it would have been for Samson and better for Israel had he shared God's hatred of sin and willingly allowed himself to be used by God. What misery and heartache he would have avoided, end quote. That much I think we can all agree with. I certainly agree with it. Samson doesn't have the hatred for sin that we should rightfully expect the man that God has set apart for his purposes to have. Instead, he has something of, a, of an affection for sin. He's the weakest of all the judges. Before we continue, I think it might be wise to spend some time talking about why the Bible would warn us of the dangers of being unequally yoked by entering into the covenant of marriage with an unbeliever. We know that Paul issued a a similar warning to the church at Corinth. The, The context of that warning, of course, was not marriage, but was church leadership. But the same principle works. It it carries over. It's the same principle either way. Marriage is a commitment to giving somebody else a higher priority than you give yourself. And for the person who is faithful to God, to marry someone who isn't faithful in any way to God, who doesn't even know God or love God or care about God, this will inevitably end up straining and continually tempting the believer's loyalty to God just because the Christian and the non-Christian have such different worldviews, such conflicting values. How many times have you heard somebody reason, well, you know, I'll marry so-and-so, but I'll change them. Anybody ever heard that? I, I remember, you know, I've, I've met people like that. I remember knowing people in college who were dating, thinking the same thing. Oh, I'll date him. He'll change because of me. Come on. We all know that's not how it works. And so what will happen is, you know, the, the person will convince themselves, well, you know, maybe I could even convert this person. Or maybe they just convince themselves that, you know, so-and-so respects their faith and is going to let them practice it freely. Unfortunately, that is not the way it works. It sounds good in theory. It sounds great. But it's never going to work that way in practice. If nothing else, the spouse will see no need to love the, the believer the way that God commands them to. If it's a woman, the husband isn't going to love her as Christ loved the church. And if it's the other way, she's not going to love him the way that the Bible instructs her to either. It's just not going to work. They don't, they don't understand how that, how that plays out, how that's supposed to look. They don't understand what it means. And so the, the unbelieving spouse won't pray for the believing spouse and they certainly won't encourage them to grow in virtue and to grow in Christ's likeness or in virtue. Looking at the context of this passage in Exodus again, the issue of interfaith marriage comes up in the middle of this discussion about idolatry. In fact, the implication is that idolatry is ultimately going to be the fruit of an interfaith marriage. Tim Keller says this, he says, quote, when your spouse doesn't share your faith, there is great pressure to adapt to that by pushing God more to the margins of your life. The natural response to this is to make God less central to everything, end quote. And I don't know about you, but I have seen how true this principle is in so many unequally yoked marriages. In fact, my best friend from first grade, he was a Christian who married a Jehovah's Witness. And let me tell you, that puts such a strain on their marriage. It's been a while since I've talked to him. But man, I, the last time I talked to him, they'd been married for you know 13 years, and it, I can't say that it had been a happy marriage. I can't say that uh, that, that she had held him to any type of standard that he should be held to by a spouse. Just because that's not how it works. I've seen marriages absolutely fall apart because the people had conflicting faiths, and that's why my daughter has one rule, one 
rule about who she will marry. It's a a rule that I have shared with her for years now, and it's a rule that I plan to stand by. You know what that rule is, Maddie? (laughs) She said she has to be 43. Uh, No, the other one. (laughs) He has to love Jesus more than I do. Now, maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration. Or is it? The point is, I I don't care about what race or nationality he is. I, I don't care what kind of job he has. I don't care what his income is. I don't care what his dreams are. I don't care how many grandkids he wants to give me. I only care that it's someone who will take very seriously the command that we husbands are to love our wives like Christ loved the church. And so I don't care who you are. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how handsome or smart or polite you might be. If you do not love Jesus with an unquenchable passion, you are not good enough for my daughter. And I know that you will not love her the way that she deserves to be loved. You don't marry a daughter of the king of kings unless your knee bows before that king as well. Now, okay, I know that I can't really control who my daughter marries. Uh, So in a sense, I'm being facetious. But the point is, I, I, I just so badly want her to see the importance of choosing wisely, especially especially when it comes to making a lifelong commitment to someone, to choosing a spouse. Friends, there is pressure on us, on every believer, every single day, to love something or to love someone else more than we love the Lord Jesus. How will anyone stand under that pressure without a spouse who will pray for them, who will pray with them, who will hold them accountable, who will encourage their growth in virtue and in godliness? Now, before we move away from this subject, we do need to remember that Paul did address the issue of being married to an unbeliever, and he instructed wives, do not leave your husbands. Do not divorce your husbands if he is not a believer. Instead, build a good marriage. Peter said it this way. He said, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. It's from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. So back to, back to Samson. He's not quite the type of leader that maybe we were expecting. He's not the leader that we were probably hoping for. He's not the type of leader that Israel needs. He finds this woman in the region of Timnah, which is deep in Israel's territory. That alone tells us a lot. This is deep, deep. This isn't at the fringe of their their territory. It's not out toward the border. This is deep in Israel's territory. The indication is that they are completely infiltrated. They've all settled together. The Philistines were occupying all of Israel. But this occupation is... Apparently, from from Israel's perspective, cordial and and, and peaceful. God's people have become ignorant. They've become impervious to their own enslavement. Let's continue, verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So the Philistines didn't just settle with Israel. This isn't just peaceful, cordial living from the Philistines' perspective. They ruled over Israel. They didn't just settle in Israel. They ruled 
over them. And yet there's not even the smallest, slightest hint of distress in all of Israel. But the author here is quick to make sure that we understand something that's very important, something that we would be wise to remember too. When everything looks like it's falling apart, God is still in control. God is still in control. Literally translated, this says that Samson's desire to marry this woman, quote, was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. Surface level. Things are spiraling. Things are out of control. We're we're, we're losing cabin pressure. We're in a nosedive. But the sovereign Lord of all the universe is completely in control. He's ordained this, according to the author, in order for the man he had chosen, Samson, to infiltrate the enemy. When I say he ordained it, what I mean is God is sovereign. And so everything that happens, he either causes to happen or he allows it to happen. Now, God can't cause sin, but he can allow it. And so that's what he's doing here. And only a sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing God would have foreseen from eternity that the lust that Samson would be governed by, he'd use that. He he knew about it. He knew how this would play out, and he was going to use this situation. He was going to use Samson's sin to accomplish his own sovereign purposes. Reminds me of the story of Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers. And when it's all said and done, Joseph said, you meant this for bad, God meant it for good. What a great God. That he can use flawed people. That he can use our own sinful impulses to accomplish his purposes. Left to himself, man, Samson, he'd be more than happy to find pleasure in the arms of the enemy and to conform to this culture of godlessness because it was right in his own eyes. Left to themselves, Israel would be more than happy to find pleasure in the arms of the enemy and to conform to this culture of godlessness because it was right in their own eyes. But God is going to use their wicked motivations to accomplish his purposes anyway. Even though there's this tendency that Israel is demonstrating to adapt to their enemies, to the culture of their enemies, God is still in control. In the early 20th century, there was a a really influential theologian named Rudolf Bultmann, who taught that the Bible was full of ignorant mythology. Those of you who are in our small group, you may remember learning about him in one of our lessons uh, on angels and demons. Uh, He taught that the the people who wrote the Bible, uh, they were so ignorant, they were so barbaric, uh, they were so stupid about how the universe worked that they would attribute things to God rather than nature. Because they just didn't know better. And so his point was that all of these miracles in the Bible, they didn't really happen. This was just stupid people coming up with stupid explanations for how things work. Very, very dangerous stuff. But as a result, man, he was so influential. And as a result, the first half of the 20th century was marked by some major Powerful mainline Protestant denominations attempting to moralize every story of the Bible and to demythologize the Bible. That is to explain everything naturalistically rather than supernaturally. And all this was in an attempt to maintain credibility with the general population. This was the church trying to adapt to the culture that they were surrounded by. And thus the Bible was no longer viewed as God's inerrant, infallible word. It was viewed as an inspiring, but not an inspired, inspiring, but not inspired collection of ancient fairy tales, basically. And this is one way that the modern church has attempted to do exactly what Israel was doing. Ease the conflict. Adapt. 
Ease the conflict. Take away the tension between the faithful and the unfaithful. But were they really relieving the tension? Were they really resolving any type of conflict? No. They were bowing down before the false god of scientific, naturalistic, anti-supernaturalistic rationalism. The church to this day has been greatly affected. There are still ripples in the modern church. We've still been affected by this capitulation to cultural conformity. Instead of teaching God's wrath, teaching that it's a, a real present danger to people, to unbelievers, many simply affirm that God is love. And they believe that that means there are churches where you will be taught that God applauds any and every personal choice. It means, and what that means from their perspective is that God could never be so exclusive that he would actually condemn anyone except for those who believe that he condemns all sin. And these churches are all over the place. They are still all over the place in American culture. In the past few years, there's been this renewed emphasis on, uh, on social justice in these churches. And by social justice, I'm talking about like um, putting wells for fresh water in you know, remote villages in Africa. Now, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. In fact, social justice isn't a bad thing by itself. But it can so easily become an idol. Because if you want to talk about social justice, if you want to talk about giving people the right to life, why aren't they on the front lines protesting abortion? Ah, They're not really all about social justice. They'll take an issue that the world will applaud, but something that the world will give them scorn for, they don't want to touch it. At what cost? At what cost do we, are, are we just happy to see people just get along? While the social justice movement has been on the rise, the emphasis on personal holiness, on discipleship, has been on the decline. As these churches have, have just come to accept all of these socially accepted sexual ethics of our day. Somebody in the church is sexually promiscuous. Oh, Jesus said, let... He who is without sin casts the first stone. Pornography? Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged. Homosexuality? They'll they'll say, "How, how can a Christian be against homosexuality when Jesus never even said anything about homosexuality? And so they're all complex and they wonder how we can justify our condemnation of it. And I'm just blown away by that argument, not because it's so right and so valid and I feel so convicted, but because it has to be just the stupidest argument of all time. I mean, it really doesn't get dumber than that argument, that Jesus never said anything about it, so how can you, uh, how can you condemn it? Because Jesus also never said anything about rape. Jesus also never said anything about taking LSD. Jesus also never said anything about alcoholism. He never said anything about incest. So if you want to take this this, uh, principle that anything that Jesus didn't condemn, we have to approve, you're opening a can of worms, my friend. The fact that Jesus may have been silent on anything, any issue, means absolutely nothing. The question is, does Scripture as a whole, does Scripture address it? Because all of Scripture is equally authoritative. You know, it's not like the red letters are the only ones that matter. And Jesus had a very high view of Scripture. Or what about abortion? There are churches, I was reading an article about this last night, and, and I wanted to weep. There are churches that are going to be celebrating the 42 year anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Personal choice is the virtue that trumps every other virtue for these types of churches. Can you imagine a church that celebrates the murder of children? 
They call themselves a church. I'm obviously using that term church a little bit too loosely here. Call me judgmental. I'll take that. I'll, I'll wear that as a badge of honor. Because that is not how the church should be acting to celebrate abortion. But the point is that the issue of doing what's right in our own eyes and disregarding whether or not something is right or wrong in the eyes of God, it's just as much a problem for us today. It's just as much a problem for the modern church as it was for Israel. And a huge portion of the modern church has grown so comfortable with ungodly virtues, ungodly values. And it's grown so, or they've grown so comfortable, I should say, with ungodly values. And it's grown so uncomfortable with the idea of encouraging and admonishing believers to grow in personal holiness and righteousness. And they've, it's gotten to the point where the whole gospel message has been convoluted. It's all just been boiled down to nothing because you don't want to judge. And that is no gospel at all. If the church were to return to a movement like Puritanism, for example, just as an example, meaning they had an emphasis on personal holiness, growing in personal holiness. Uh, They had a very high view of Scripture, and they really emphasized the unconditional surrender of the believer to the Lordship of Christ. If the church were to embrace a movement like that, what do you think would happen? If these churches just stopped being so focused on being more therapeutic than God-glorifying, there would be conflict. There would be a huge chasm between the believer and the unbeliever. And that means there would be conflict. In Israel, God was going to step in and use the sinful actions of his own people to prevent them from becoming just like the world, spiritually dead, And he was going to do it through Samson. Not because of Samson's character, not because of Samson's Samson's, uh, virtue, but in spite of it. And that means there's going to be conflict. Listen, if our prayer is that the Lord would stir up a revival in our own country as well, and that's, that's something I pray for regularly, We have to expect and we have to accept the fact that that too will mean conflict. It means that we will stick out like a sore thumb. And so may our lives be marked by a commitment to growing in personal holiness, to being set apart, no matter what the cost may be. May we strive to love and pursue after Christ and his righteousness with more fervor than anything else we might desire or pursue in life. May we grow so weary and uncomfortable with sin that we pray regularly, crying for God to deliver us from the evil one. May we grow in our understanding and our love of God's word, that it would be a light to our paths. And may we grow in a desire to truly belong to and love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Not as a group of people who are disconnected, but as a group of people who are connected, who are at peace and living in harmony with one another because we're all part of the same body. Because through these things, God is glorified and we're edified. And so the question that we're left with, and I want you to just think about this for a moment and search our hearts. The question I want to leave us with is this, just personal reflection. Why do we find cultural conformity so tempting? And in what ways do you especially feel the pressure to conform to the culture rather than to Christ? Because it's going to be different for each of us. So what I'm asking is that you take a minute to reflect on these questions. And I'll close this in prayer in a moment. Lord, we confess to you that we are broken, that we're flawed, 
that we are regularly tempted to conform to the culture rather than being transformed into the likeness of your son. Because we're weak, Lord. In our flesh, we're, we're so weak. And so we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to take your wrath against sin on our behalf because, Lord, we know that every single one of us is deserving of it. And without your grace, we've got nothing. We've got nothing but condemnation. So we thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus to redeem us, to die in our place, to die in the place where we rightfully should have been so that we can go to a place where we don't deserve to go, and that is to be with you. God, I pray that this truth would just shake us, that it would penetrate the depths of our hearts. Make us a people, God, who are committed, who are just completely sold out to you, to growing in personal holiness, not so that we can be judgmental, but so that we can glorify you in the world, so that the world may see how great, how good you are, not how great and good we are. Because on our own, Lord, we are so weak. So we pray for your glory to shine through us, that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.